alcohol and uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Poland, all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 35th episode of Polcast. In this episode, we will tell you... How a three-year-old boy's amazement at a grand piano in a shop window led to an international musical career. Why Poles are getting a car ready for Tom Hanks and how a community spirit can change lives of refugee families and bring people together. Smachnego! We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two Heritage Polish cookbooks, called Classic Polish Recipes and Classic Polish Desserts. Where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations, but updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Dill soup is about as Polish as you can get. It contains many of the ingredients that distinguish Polish cuisine from the others. It's fresh, simple, and showcases the flavor of dill, which really should be declared the national herb of Polish cuisine. Fresh dill has a lot more flavor than the dried stuff in a jar. My grandmother's recipe from pre-World War II Warsaw is about as classic as you can get. I fired up Google to see if it was still popular today. And according to the recipes I saw, today in Poland, dill soup is being eaten with potatoes cooked in the soup, with rice or even egg noodles. So any starch will work well. We love dill soup for lunch on a chilly day, and we like it best with dribbled battered dumplings, in Polish, lanekluski, which is another classic. When I was young, the dribbles were an infrequent treat, even though they're incredibly easy to make. The soup base is just six cups of beef or chicken broth, butter, chopped dill, of course, flour, an egg, and sour cream. These ingredients can't just be tossed together. Be sure to follow the steps in the recipe. The dribbles are a simple batter made from flour, an egg, and salt, which is dribbled from a fork into the boiling hot soup pot. They firm up in just a minute or two. Ladle this goodness into your soup bowls. Give each bowl a sprinkle of fresh dill for color and an extra dill kick, and slurp away. The full recipe for dill soup and dribbles and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking. Just scroll down to the piece posted on September 28th, 11. The books make a great Christmas gift. Smachnego! I first heard of Daniel Wnukowski when he was a very young boy, a gifted pianist from Windsor, Ontario. Now he's 35, himself a father, living in Vienna. 
His career is truly impressive. He has studied or performed with the best of the best throughout Europe, North America, South America, and Asia in prestigious concert halls, participating in world's leading piano festivals. Let's see how it all started and where it's led to. We reach Daniel Vnukovsky in Vienna. It started in Windsor in Canada, and from what I read, it was something quite amazing at a very early age. Uh, yes, my parents told me I saw a piano made of clear through plastic in the store, and I became fascinated by all the intricate mechanical parts working in perfect sync with each other to produce um, wonderful music. And I, I begged my, my parents to start taking lessons. They weren't quite convinced that I'm very serious about it. At what age was that? Because this that is was important. three and a half. Having a daughter now, I, I'm also wondering. You know, she's, she's um, close to three years of age now. And she responds incredibly to, to the music. But one never knows whether, whether you know, music may be, become her, her profession one day or, or merely a hobby. Um, yet in my case, I, I was absolutely blown away by this instrument, begged my, my parents to start taking lessons, and my, my parents first got me a little Hammond organ, electric. We still have it to this day. Wonderful little little instrument from the 80s. The, the organ I played for about half a year, and the first teacher I had said, well, let's move him to the piano. I, I think he, he's ready to, to pursue his goal. My goal was always to learn piano. And that was at what age? I was at four. So at the age of four, you actually knew it was going to be the piano and you never complained about practicing? It, no, no, no. It was always a pleasure from what I can remember. There, there was um, a lot of improvisatory sessions. I loved to improvise. I loved to take melodies that were thrown at me, carols, folk tunes, and I loved to speed it up and, and <laughs> slow it down and uh, add a ton of arpeggios and, and bang away at the piano, try all the effects that, that a piano is able to, to provide us. Have you tried other instruments as well? Yes, I, I did flute and French horn in um, high school for fun. And um, also when I was about five or six, I, I took up the violin for, for a couple of years. What is it about the piano? What is it about the piano? I, I wish I could explain because the piano often has more control over me than, than I have over it. There's something about the sound quality, the fact that it can emulate so many instruments we, you know, as, as one can see with list piano transcriptions, there's a, just a wealth of sound quality and uh, sound color that one can bring out on the piano. I love other instruments. My wife plays viola, and I, I enjoy the nuances between each instrument, how the viola, uh, even the repertoire in the viola is so much different than the repertoire for violin. And I think that piano is, is, a, is, a, is a foundation of some kind where one can explore all these sound ranges. Also, it gives one the possibility to improvise with full harmony. So it's a, an essential tool, as any composer can tell you, to draw one's own music. And really, the repertoire is limitless. Mm -hmm. Do you prefer to play solo or with the orchestra? Both. Both. I, I would say... Some of my most memorable experiences have been, for example, for fundraisers for a certain cause in a very intimate venue, while performing in front of an orchestra with, you know, several thousand people present is less intimate. 
perhaps more memorable for for the public. It's it's very hard to say. This is interesting. You mentioned those um, those fundraising thing. This is quite an important part of your life, your charitable organization involvement and fundraising. What do you think makes you do that? Do you think that being an artist, you have more compassion, more empathy? Well, we're definitely not hardcore businessmen. How, how difficult it can be. Uh, when a young pianist today is faced with the role of, of selling himself or herself. The market has become quite saturated and, and one has to sell oneself. And that's very, very difficult to do. When at the same time one has to practice Bach, you know, English suites and, uh, you know, and perform the most delicate Chopin nocturnes. Uh, so absolutely, one by the very nature of being a pianist, one has an incredible sense of empathy. And I think that's what draws artists so much to these kinds of events. However, there's also an element of connection. We really want to connect with our audiences. It's one thing to practice alone in dialectic reflection, working out harmonic orientation, uh, melodic integrity, analysis of the score. That's all nice and, and often left-brained in our experiences. However, the music really comes to life as soon as one person enters the room. It's almost like one speaks a different language at that point. It's like the difference between singing in, you know, in an opera house with, with thousands of people present and singing in one's shower. So there's this incredible need to connect with a broader audience. What was the most memorable case of your fundraising or charitable performances? I think one of my deepest experiences was in my own hometown. This was many years ago in Windsor, Ontario. Rather insignificant concert, internationally speaking, in a little church. We, we did a fundraiser for a, a, a young girl just entering her teens with leukemia. Her parents came to, to the concert. Her reaction to, to the music, how how also the audience listened so intently to the entire performance was, was absolutely a ground-shattering, memorable experience mm. for her. How about something that was very glorious, you know, something that everybody would be happy to put on their CV and everybody envies you uh, professionally? <laughs> Possibly performing uh, at the Singapore Botanical Gardens for the unveiling of a Chopin monument. That, that was uh, a lot of blast, um, you know, with, with uh, outdoor event. Uh, the only thing separating me from, from several thousand people was a, was a little pond. But um, it, it was a really fun just to play these virtuosic, you know, waltzes mm. and, and virtuosic experiences. And, you know, mm. you know, that was probably a glorious experience. You're Polish. You were born in a Polish family in Canada. Now, you've done quite a lot of moving around, right? You were born in Canada. Now you live in Vienna, I understand, which is a perfect place, I guess, for a musician, isn't it? Oh, yes, yes. We, we love it here. Uh, Vienna is quite an international uh, place. It has so much of its old world charm embedded. Uh, I have performed in my in our very own living room here at the in the center of Vienna. We have done house concerts, keeping the you know the, the centuries old tradition from the time of Mozart and and Beethoven and Schubert. So uh, we 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 love to invite people, and we've had people from Wiener Philharmoniker and um, you know singers, uh, both very established and and not so established. 
And, um, you know, people of, of international stature live right around the corner from me. And, and as you walk down the streets, you hear some practicing. So it's a wonderful launching pad for other cities as well, because it's such a short uh, journey. I'm kind of in the middle, whether I need to go to Asia or whether I need to go to North America or, you know, bounce around Europe. It's, it's a very convenient location. Do you miss Canada? Uh, yes. Being born in Canada is, is uh, an, an interesting thing for, for a musician. As I traverse around Europe, I see so many nations reviving a kind of nationalistic fervor about them. When somebody like me, a Canadian, can look at everything from a distance we see the interconnectedness of, of everybody. We don't have the, the political problems of, of trying to integrate, trying to, for example, to become more Austrian or trying to be more Polish. Um, as a Canadian, we, we, we program, and especially as a Canadian musician, we program works, of, you know, whether it's we, a German work, you know, Handel or, or Bach, we'll put it together with a Russian work and we don't see any problems. Whereas some Europeans, they, they could never envision doing a program like that because, you know, how dare you? How dare you mix, you know, two, two so varied uh, cultures? I think as a as a Canadian musician, I, I can take a fresh look on a lot of the repertoire. I'm very proud to be Canadian. Canada has given me a lot of support, especially my younger years, uh, helping me with my study, whether it's the Canada Council for the Arts grants or, or other local grant programs. Individuals have helped out. And, and I really can't envision achieving half of these things that, that I've achieved if it wasn't for the incredible support that Canadians from the community had given me during my earlier years. To learn more about Daniel's music and life, please visit our website, mypodcast.com. And next week, we will talk to Daniel about his passion and mission, another face of the virtuoso Polish-Canadian pianist. older than 30-35, about a small fiat called by Poles Maluch, a small one or a toddler, and you will hear a million stories. Almost each Polish family in the 70s and 80s dreamt of having one. The most affordable and the smallest of cars produced in Poland, it was still quite unaffordable to many Poles. The Fiat 126, type 126, was introduced in 1972 at the Turin Auto Show as a replacement for Fiat 500. Some were produced in Bielsko-Biała in Poland as the Polski Fiat 126P until the year 2000. It was replaced by the front-engine Fiat Cinquecento in 1993. Poland did not produce enough small Fiats, so there was a waiting list, and buyers had to wait a couple of years to get a car. 
A coupon for this kind of car could also be given by the authorities as a bonus, for example, for special merits. Altogether, the plant in Bielsko-Biała produced over 3.3 million cars. The Fiat 126P was really tiny and meant in Italy as a city vehicle. But in Poland, where a car was a luxury, it was often a family car. For those who could afford it, there was an option of towing a small Niviadov N126 trailer caravan specially designed for this small Fiat. My husband and I had an orange small Fiat, surprisingly powerful, sometimes even reaching 110 to 115 kilometers per hour. And with our nine-year-old son and full camping equipment on the roof rack, plus food supplies, we drove from Poland across Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria to Greece, over the mountain of Olympus, and then all over the country. It never failed us. How that was possible, it's hard to imagine now, but in those days, such an adventure was not unique. One of the records over 22,000 kilometers across Asia and before that Africa belongs to Arkady Fiedler, a grandson of the famous Polish traveler and author. Whose name was also Arkady Fiedler, by the way. Why are we talking about the small Fiat now? Tom Hanks himself expressed admiration for this funny little car, posting a photo of himself with one such car from Budapest and then two other pictures. They all went viral. Polish fans decided to buy one for their idol. A Polish woman from the very town where the factory was located organized a fundraising campaign through the fan page Bielsko-Biała for Tom Hanks. And if you ever visit the picturesque mountain town of Bielsko-Biała, known for its fabulous skiing areas, you need to visit one and only cafe plus museum of small fiat called Maluch Cafe. Its owner sent Tom Hanks a user manual in Hungarian. After all, that's where the Maluch Hanks promoted comes from. Ewa Stachniak is a renowned Canadian writer of Polish descent. In the near future, we will be talking to her about her best-selling books, which have been translated into many languages, and the new one that's coming out in January... But today, she will tell us about a wonderful initiative of the community where she lives in Toronto. A great idea to share, which shows how compassion and cooperation can do wonders. Eva, you live uh, in an area that used to be totally Polish. It was actually this proverbial little Poland in uh, Toronto, Roncesvalles Avenue and the areas around it. How long have you lived there now? About 13 years, so That's quite right. a long quite time. Quite a long time, right. And so you have witnessed incredible changes that are taking place there. There are a few stores left, a bank, a church. What is it like now? Well, it's it's a very progressive um wonderful neighborhood filled with uh, artists, academics, young families, uh, people of very different walks of life. We have uh, a few condominium buildings being built, so young professionals move in. Um, I think it's a very varied neighborhood, a little bit gentrified in in ways that old stores that uh, probably had a lot of problems in surviving are gone, and they are replaced by more modern and, and sort of smart shops. 
But I think it still preserved a sense of a small neighborhood and people know each other. They shop in, along Roncesvalles. We live here, we work here, we have friends here. I think it, uh, this is something that I love. It really is like a little village. It, there's a great sense of community. We are involved in, in the life of our local movie theater with its uh, festivals, with its uh, Polish festival among them. I think we gather together whenever there is any need, any action. I find uh, mm -hmm. I really belong here. So the neighborhood spirit, I was so impressed by this incredibly interesting and very dynamic, as it looks, initiative, which is the refugee help group that you have created. This is in response to our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's uh, pledge to take um, into Canada 25,000 Syrian refugees, an appeal that he issued to Canadians to rally around and help in sponsoring uh, these families. You know, we are talking about people who have probably spent several years in refugee camps. And they are families. They are not individuals. So there are young children, sometimes people who are traumatized by the events that they had to live. I think that, that this initial message was that with the community involvement, these people have a chance of adapting and, and, and thriving here. And, and if we simply bring them into the country and without offering that help. This is not going to be a very successful story, but there's, there's more to it. I think that Canada has a very, very strong a tradition of helping refugees. You know, I, I wasn't in, in Canada in the 60s when the Vietnamese boat people came in and very similar circumstances, but I was one of the Polish refugees, you know, who came here in the 80s. I remember a lot of help. I remember churches being involved in sponsoring Polish refugees from the camps in Austria and Italy. I have family who came through such camps um, and also received help in sponsoring my own family from Polish communities. So I think that we all, I mean, sort of each generation of Canadians draws from this well of goodwill. You know, once you get established and, and have something to share, I think a lot of us are very willing to give back to the community that helped us. So I think that that was the initial focus. And very many such groups appeared in Toronto. Many of my friends are part of such a group sponsoring a family or helping a family. I joined the Roncesvalles group, um, not at the very, very uh, inception because I just didn't know it started. I, I, I learned about them about two or three months uh, one, um, later when um, the, the original founders of the group, there's a core of 40, um, started uh, fundraising to be able to sponsor a family. And I, I thought that I would be able to join and to maybe donate. Uh, I actually donated my, um, uh, you know, a basket full of my books and the promise that I will go to any anybody who pledges money to give a private book club performance and which was taken up. But I also donated money and so did my neighbors and everybody around. And, uh, and, but, and I also felt that maybe donating money and sort of donating books or donating things is not all I want to do, that I really want to be more involved. And so uh, we have monthly meetings. We are waiting for our families. By now, we have enough money to sponsor two. What kind of money are we talking about? What, how much money do you need per family? We need about $50,000 per family. What uh, does that buy? That 
allows us to pay for their apartment, give them an allowance. That is actually the minimum that the government requires. You know, if you have a little bit more, then you can ask for a bigger family. Our families are uh, two adults and three children. We have more than the minimum. We have also a lot of pledges from the communities. We already have an apartment that will be available to them. How do you get the family? Do you get to choose? Well, there's a very, very stringent uh, and, and important government process. I mean, the, the, the people who are chosen for becoming a sponsored refugees have to go through a whole lot of security checks and other checks. And that doesn't happen in Canada. It happens uh, outside of Canada in the refugee camps. And it takes months. Towards the very end of the process, once the family is considered qualified for this um, sponsorship, then we learn of their identity. And by now we know that one of our families is in Jordan in a refugee camp that's two um, adults with three small children, very small, two, three, six. And another family is in Turkey in a refugee camp waiting for, you know, there's health checks to be had. Because the, the wait time is fairly long. The, the two friends of mine who, who started this whole group had a brilliant idea that it really is such a waste of our energy to sit and wait. We might as well get involved in helping the families who are sponsored by other groups and use some of our connections and help them people who are already here. So they've organized, for example, the, the big drive um, to collect bicycles. In Toronto's transportation is not very cheap. We collected over 100 bikes. Uh, we refurbished them, made sure that they were safe, and people donated helmets and locks and all the paraphernalia of, of uh, for bikers. And we organized an event in which um, uh, Syrian refugees, and not on this, we are not specific to, to, to Syria, we, anybody who is a refugee in Canada, uh, we advertised that they can come and, and get a bike. So that was extremely successful. Then there was a drive to get sewing machines because this refugee women told uh, us that they could do a lot if they had sewing machines. They could uh, make clothes for their children. They could, you know, if they get used clothes, they could make sure they fitted well. And and I immediately remembered that, you know, in my childhood, a sewing machine was a lifesaver. You know, my grandmother was able to make clothes for me and for my mother, even out of curtain or leftover fabric. So I, I could understand that drive. That was a very successful one. Then there was a social in which we just got to know people who are newly arrived in Canada and they don't have too many friends and they really appreciated the fact that they were invited for a potluck dinner together with their children where they got to know each other and us. The last drive was for winter clothes. This is the time where we all go through our closets and there's lots of coats and boots and mittens and scarves that we may no longer like. The local church gave um, gave its basement for us and, and, and then we invited uh, families from all over Toronto to come and pick up clothes for them and for their children and for their friends. Every family got a person who would help them choose and select the good things and then help them pack and send them on their way. But I guess our true work will begin when our families arrive. When is, and, uh, this, when is this expected? We happen? never know. We never know. It could be any time right now, but probably not before Christmas. But any time after Christmas, we may get a phone call. But, uh, we'll have to go to the airport to pick up our family. Are you all going? Or is it going to no, be like a no, big no, delegation? Very, we are extremely well organized. I have to uh. say that the two women, Joanne and Barbara, who are spearheading all this, they got us organized into committee 
committees, and each committee is responsible for one thing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I am part of the fundraising committee. Well, and I'm sort of helping wherever there is a need for. But there's a household committee, the apartment committee, the um, ESL committee, which I'm thinking of joining mm-hmm. after fundraising is no longer necessary. Which will mean that I can offer English conversations to the children and to this to the adults who will probably have to start English classes pretty soon. You know, any help with homework um, and conversation will be will be welcome. So there is a welcoming committee, which is three or four people, and they will go to the airport, not us. <laughs> I'm not part of that. Well, do they know about you? Do they know that um, this is the kind of uh, framework that is yes. being established for them? Yes. With one of the families, uh, we have already exchanged a few emails, so they know that there is a group waiting and that they, they are going to be taken care of. And our legal obligation to the sponsored family is for one full year. But we are hoping that we'll stay friends after that, too, and then we'll be able to give um, counsel and help, perhaps, after that as well. To learn more about this program, as well as other initiatives of this kind, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. You were listening to the 35th episode of Podcast. Podcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals, and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. We're always curious about your reactions, comments, and suggestions. Also, ideas for the news stories. Please share them on our website, mypolcast.com. And we leave you today with Chopin's Heroic Polonaise, performed by Daniel Wnukowski. Thank you for listening. <laughs>